0: Last week, we talked all about the meaning of the story, the inspiration behind it, and even a little bit about the meaning of horror and horror as catharsis. This week, we have a very special guest. Dr. Camille Tubalowski is a clinical psychologist, and she's here to talk about mental health and horror and some of the mental health issues that are going on in the story. So I'd like to welcome Camille.
1: My name is Dr. Camille Tobolowski and I'm a clinical psychologist working um, in a private practice in Dallas, Texas. And really, um, I specialize in eating concerns, anxiety, depression, emerging adulthood, um, very much general psychologist as well.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed, Camille. Camille and I have been best friends since kindergarten. And she is one of the few people who will watch pretty much any horror movie with me, no matter what. She can watch things that even I have to be like, okay, I can't watch that. So I don't really think it's possible to scare you. Is Do you disagree with that?
1: You know, we have really, I think we've seen everything on all ends of the spectrum together. And so I would say that's pretty accurate. There's never really been a, either that scared you. Yeah, you know, I mean, I some
0: things know. I find kind of gross, like when we watched The Hills Have, have Eyes, I had to leave the room. Not because I was scared, just because it was gross.
1: Okay, that's where it gets me. I can watch any type of horror, they're going to pop out great, but the gore just, I have to walk away. I think yeah. we, both human to cent- we drew
0: the line at the human centipede. Mm-hmm that was a little much. That was horrible. That was just awful. I don't know why that was ever created. Yeah. Um, But okay, we'll talk about the story. So first off, did you find the story scary and why? And keeping in mind that I know you weren't actually scared, but did you find it scary? Yes.
1: I don't know if I would say scary so much as eerie, if we would put that in a different category. I'm fine Um, with that. Because it's not like a, you know, something is jumping out and and scaring you or it's going to be a scream. It's more of a suspense of like waiting and a feeling of darkness. It's like a creepiness, I would say, is the sense that it gave me just like this eerie kind of like almost an uncomfortable feeling. Good. That that was my goal. I think what is amazing about your writing is your ability to just really set the scene and the way you describe the environment Oh, so you, you can really picture being there. And so that's, I think, what gave it that extra element of eeriness is that you like feel like you're there.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate that. If So in the first episode of this podcast, I actually read the story and I put in lots of sound effects. So maybe that'll even enhance that. Yes. A little bit. Um, So let's talk about the main character. His name is Andrew Faring. What did you think of him just in general?
1: Okay. Well, he doesn't seem to be doing too well. No. <laughs> I would say, I mean, right off the bat. We have a history of substance use. Very clear,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in terms of what's going on currently in the story, I had to give him a diagnosis or really describe what's happening. I would say some alcoholic hallucinosis, so really hallucinations, uh, semi psychosis due to his alcoholism.
0: Yes, yeah, so that was going to be my next question: was how would
1: you diagnose him? Okay, sorry, I jumped right into it. That's totally um, fine. Yes. Right. It, so something obviously that can happen through chronic alcohol use, which I know you mentioned, seems like years and years in majority of his life, mm-hmm. substance use. more so alcohol sounds like in the recent years versus drug use. Right.
0: And what are some of the mental health effects of alcoholism?
1: Well, definitely isolation and, you know, being disconnected from others, which we can see, right, of even um, mm-hmm. how you described it, not really connected. To anyone around him, right? Or even when he's in the subway but still very alone. Um yeah. yeah, so isolation, feeling disconnected, um auditory hallucinations, which we are seeing. Um he also has some visual hallucinations, delusions as well. Um so almost you know characteristics that can really mimic schizophrenia almost.
0: Well, that's interesting. Is that something you typically see in alcohol withdrawal if you've been a prolonged person suffering from alcoholism?
1: Yes. And so that, you know, if I were to ask some follow-up questions to really get a more detailed idea of what's going on, I was wondering, you know, when's the last time that he drank or is this, are these symptoms of withdrawal, which like exactly what you're saying can look very, very similar.
0: How long does it take for somebody to start experiencing
1: symptoms of alcohol withdrawal? It can be pretty fast. So I mean, it depends on the person, but, but it doesn't take too long. And that can definitely, you know, what he's experiencing could be withdrawal indeed if he hasn't, you know, drank even in a day or a few days.
0: That's pretty terrifying. I mean, what would, if you had a patient like him, what would you recommend he do?
1: Well, it sounds like he, you know, his use is pretty severe. Um, And also, I mean, that can be detrimental to your health as well if you're going through withdrawal. People get really, really sick. And so, I mean, he would need to be hospitalized and definitely in treatment, have some sort of intervention.
0: I've heard, and this might not be true, that alcohol withdrawal can actually kill you. Is that true? Yes, definitely. How? How does that kill you?
1: It's, you know, that's, I don't know the full mechanisms of it, but your body, it's craving the alcohol obviously becomes dependent on it and can't even function without the alcohol at that point. So really everything just starts to shut down.
0: That's pretty terrifying. I mean, given what you've read in the story, do you think it's pretty clear that he's suffering from alcohol withdrawal, or do you think it's possible he's actually seeing ghosts?
1: So, you know, that, that is a good question. I think it could go either way, or even, you know, one way I could interpret it is, okay, is he actually getting close to death?
0: Yeah. And I mean, maybe, I mean, when I talked to my mom about this story, she said, well, it's possible that maybe he's imagining the entire thing. Maybe he's not even really trapped
1: hmm Well, and so, and I kind of analyzed the leak as a leak between reality and psychosis mm. and the barrier is is kind of like his mental health and then and being in touch with the reality. And as the water is seeping in, is he getting enveloped by his psychosis at that point? Or could it even be he's getting closer to death?
0: He's oh my gosh. I love that interpretation.
1: Yeah. So kind of, again, that barrier... Um, and something else I, I was thinking about too, is, you know, when you describe the concert in Chicago, which was kind of the end of an era for him yeah. the band and his, and his family in that chapter, right. You describe the barrier of the, the police officer. And so there was kind of a link I thought between that, the end of the era there, we have the barrier in the subway and the leak and is at the end of his life. So interesting, interesting interpretations. I I love this story because I think there's so many ways that you could read into it.
0: Well, thank you because I mean, it's so nice to talk to different people about it because that is not an interpretation I had thought of. That's not one my mom thought of. So thank you for sharing that. That's super interesting. I really like that. So I want to shift a little bit to talk kind of about the clinical psychological roots of fear and anxiety and kind of why do we like I know not everybody but why do we in general like horror and scary stuff if it makes us so anxious
1: I think it's you know we're fascinated with the unknown Mm -hmm. because we don't know what that looks like so I think it's scary I mean anxiety is being in a state of the unknown right and being uncomfortable and so I think when we read these stories it's almost like you know, when we're anxious and we feel out of control, I don't really know anyone who enjoys being anxious. Just when you're anxious about your own stuff, yeah. But it's almost like you feel a little sense of control about being anxious about something that doesn't affect you personally. Yeah, if that makes sense. It's almost it like you're in control of the anxiety in that context.
0: Yeah, because I mean, you can watch a movie, you can read a book, and then you can turn off the TV, you can close the book, and you're not in that world. Hmm.
1: Exactly. I think it causes you know a sense of excitement as well. Yeah. Um, even looking at it from a somatic perspective, you know, when we're anxious and our heart's racing and we might get sweaty palms and whatnot, very similar physical sensations to when we're feeling excited. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because you're, it just depends on how your brain interprets it. So I think it gives us a little bit of that adrenaline rush as well, that we might even feel excited. That's so
0: true. I mean, my mom always tells me whenever I'm anxious about something, especially if it's like public speaking or something that, that, you know, shouldn't really be scary. She's like, just tell yourself you're excited instead. It doesn't really work for me, but it could. It's it's a great idea
1: in theory. Obviously, easier said than done to tell yourself, you know, I'm going to feel one way versus the other. But I like that perspective of just interpreting those sensations as something a little bit more positive or manageable versus anxiety.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And Thinking also about kind of mental health and horror. Uh, before this, I was looking up the number of films, popular films that have like mental health and mental illness is a key ingredient of the horror. So think of like Psycho, The Shining, The Silence of the Lambs, Misery. And there's kind of a reason there's an entire subgenre called psychological horror. So I'm curious what you think about that as a clinical psychologist.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's something that we don't really understand. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating to us, right? Um, and something that you know it, it feels terrifying, and obviously we wouldn't want to think about it in our reality. But I think it's just interesting for us to fantasize about it in a way that feels safe, right? right? And we're so
0: connected to it, so it's kind of cathartic because you're thinking, yes. "Oh, that is not happening to me," but I can still get a picture of what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Yes, right.
1: And I think we're just intrigued by things that are unknown to us. Yeah that we don't have the answers to. And it gives us room, you know, even like with your story, right? That everyone can come up with such different interpretations.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And I think that's one of the best things about reading horror, especially horror. My mom called it the blank space when you are writing or reading or listening to something scary and you don't necessarily provide a description of the monster or say exactly what's behind the door. It's kind of the blank space and people can fill it with whatever scares them the most. And that's way more effective than if you have like, You're watching the grudge and you see that creepy little girl come out. That might not be scary to you, you know? Yes. It it lets
1: your imagination fixate on, I I think that's a good point on kind of whatever is relevant to you.
0: Right. Yeah. Because nobody's better at scaring you than yourself. Exactly. I mean, you probably experience that all the time when you're talking to patients with anxiety and somebody might be like, oh my gosh, I am so anxious about this thing. And that's something that most people aren't scared of at all.
1: Mm Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I I think that's, what's interesting too, is that we all have our own specific anxieties, our own specific fears. A lot of it comes from our childhood or of course our different experiences that we've had. So it would be interesting to see, you know, reading the leak of, of how people interpret it based on what experiences they've had. Right. Or did they know someone with the history of mental illness or substance use and how does that affect the way that they see the story or, you know, the sense of eeriness they feel or fear or anything like that.
0: That's so true. Cause I mean, there are probably people out there who like my husband ran, who does not believe in ghosts Mm -hmm. and who isn't necessarily afraid of the dark or of small spaces or anything like that, who might still find something in the story that's eerie, but not necessarily scary. And a question I thought of for you as we're thinking about psychological horror is, do you think it's possible that we in general are just afraid of kind of becoming alien to ourselves because if we can't rely on our own perception, then we can't really rely on much of anything. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, and and it's interesting
1: too. You know, thinking about the story at the end of, I thought what was fascinating is that you know the people that were his family, right? They, there's no mention of his biological family or anything like that. These people were his family, and so you would think that when he's seeing them, it would be something that was comforting right and familiar and rather he's terrified. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's maybe just how isolated and disconnected he's become from everyone. Well, and I think it's, it's hard because yeah, you don't know even in these stories when we're reading it,
0: what's really happening here. Yeah. I mean, there's so many books like that too and movies where you're thinking, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. I think I know what's going on, but I really don't. And also in a lot of horror media, especially movies, the characters kind of refuse to recognize there is a threat that might be supernatural until it's too late because they just don't want to accept that they might be losing their minds.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And I think, you know, we we all have a lot of pride and it's hard for us to admit that, okay, maybe we're losing touch with reality or reach out for help and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's the biggest barrier sometimes as well, if, if like this denial and not wanting to admit that, okay, maybe we are feeling a little bit lost.
0: Yeah, because what would it mean if we said, okay, you know what, I really think that's a ghost. I really am seeing a ghost. I mean, it's possible that you are, but at the same time, we tend to view people who do say things like that as, okay, maybe maybe you're not doing okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's a stigma,
1: right? No, no. I think in terms of mental health awareness and resources, it definitely has gotten a lot better. And yeah, I think there still is a stigma where people are worried, you know, what is someone going to think, right? Are they going to label me in a certain way? And so that causes a lot of hesitance and resistance to reaching out for help or even, you know, to your closest friends to tell them what's going on and to be vulnerable and to open up about that.
0: But don't you think it's gotten so much better? Because even now, just when I'm listening to random podcasts, I get so many ads for all sorts of therapists. And I think it's kind of cool to be in therapy now, whereas you're right, before even just like 30, 40 years ago, nobody would want to admit that they were in therapy.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and that's what I've seen, you know, since I've, I've started practicing. Um, I think during COVID, especially people were definitely more open Yeah, to their support and receiving help. And I think it has become a much more normalized thing um, to say, you know, I'm going to therapy and, and that stigma is starting to dwindle a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, But what I've seen is is more of that generational component of, you know, if I have some young adults and and they don't have any stigma against going to therapy and and seeking help, they have a hard time communicating that with their parents who might not understand the mindset of, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just keep going. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a hard, a hard thing. And that can create a lot of barriers amongst family members sometimes, too.
0: Totally. And I mean, if you think about the character in the story, he's in his 60s, I think I said. And so he's of that generation that is thinking, no way am I going to ask for help. No way am I going to go to therapy? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and and something I was wondering too, you know, if let's say he was my client, I would love to know more about his family history Mm -hmm. and know, okay, is there a history of of substance use? Because there's a huge biological and genetic component. and you know, where is his family? Because they talk about his family with the band, right? But no, again, no mention of where's his actual family, right? And, and where's yeah. his support? So we don't know, did he grow up in a dysfunctional family unit? Um, was he just not willing to get help? And so they disconnected themselves from him. It'd be interesting to take a look at that as well.
0: Yeah, that's totally. I, I definitely agree with that. And I mean, It is scary to think about the idea of losing your grip on reality, which it seems like he's doing, whether it's alcohol withdrawal, whether he's actually seeing ghosts. I mean, one of the most terrifying experiences that we as humans can imagine is that if that connection inside you breaks, I mean, what happens to you then? Mm -hmm. How can you prepare
1: that?
2: mm -hmm.
0: Well, an interesting thinking about him specifically and
1: him losing touch with reality is he really doesn't have a purpose at this point. And I think when you don't have a purpose or this sense of meaning, it's way easier for your reality to dwindle, right? And and, for it to become fragmented, right? And I think for him being, you know, a groupie part of this band, that was his purpose, right? That was his sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. He lost that once that was dismantled, right? And so you see there's nothing really grounding him at this point anymore. And that's what you see a lot, especially in terms of substance use, right, where it's hard to function, you can't keep a job and whatnot, and you lose that sense of purpose, responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you're floating through life, but it's a little bit more aimlessly.
0: That's a good point. I compared this in an earlier discussion about this story to kind of like peaking in high school, except his version of peaking in high school is when he had his family, he had the band, he was a groupie. And then after that, you're right, he just didn't really have a purpose because he peaked during that time. And when that when that time couldn't exist anymore, he just kind of drifted and was like, well, what am I supposed to do now?
1: Yeah, right. And it, it's so easy to lose yourself again when you just have no connection with the world outside of you.
0: Yeah, right? and when all of your friends either die, like we saw, or they move on and get conventional jobs, get married, but you don't feel like that's something that is available to you for whatever reason.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and, and us as
1: humans, I mean, we are built to have a sense of belonging and connection or else we don't survive. Yeah. Right. Like that's how we evolved. And that's how we came to be where we are today. And so you see, you know, when someone doesn't have that sense of belonging, like he lost his belonging a while ago, right. Typically that's when you're going to deteriorate the fastest.
0: Right. But when his friends do come back, he, the last thing he wants is to belong to that group anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. Because when
0: they come back and whether or not this is a, like a figment of his own imagination, or maybe they really were that way and he just couldn't see them as they are. He's mm-hmm. thinking, okay, whatever they are doing, I do not want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the ultimate act of, okay, even the people that I thought I belonged to, I no longer belong to them and I don't want to. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. It's kind of this ultimate um, you know, reality and ending for him of he is just completely disconnected from everyone and everything at that point. Right. And and really can't trust anything anymore. Yeah. Truly alone. Like the true definition of, of being alone, which I think also, you know, going back to what gave me that sense of eeriness, just how alone he was.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause even if he could yell and scream, I mean, he doesn't have a phone, but even if he could yell and scream, nobody would hear him there's absolutely no way that he can contact anybody else. Mm-hmm. And in a way, he's kind of felt like that his whole life, ever since his sense of belonging was kind of taken away from him, he's never felt like he could reach out to anybody. Mm-hmm. So he just continues on feeling that way. Even even if he is dying, then even in death, he continues to feel alone, which yeah. is really sad. And maybe that's part of the reason the story is kind of eerie and uncomfortable, as you said, because we have to reckon with, what happens when you are facing kind of the ultimate aloneness?
1: and I think for most people, that's our biggest fear right of ending yeah. up alone?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that's so true, and that's not even something that is only in horror. I mean, you see that in all kinds of genres. Mm-hmm. the idea of ending up alone
1: yeah yeah, romance, everything right yeah. and and again, you know since we thrive and we're built to have this sense of belonging, it would make sense that that's going to be our biggest fear deep down. And our biggest vulnerability of, of feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm alone.
0: Yeah, very true. Well, I just for fun, I want to ask you. I know it's hard to scare you, but what would you find really scary? What are some of the scariest things you've read or seen, or would think would be scary if you saw them? That's a good question.
1: For <laughs> me, it's it's the things that are very realistic and could happen. Yeah. I think that terrifies me because that that lingers on but that sticks with me and then i'll think about it later um especially in the context of when i'm watching if it's at night and it's dark i'm alone or something like that that's when it will really get me yeah,
0: yeah. i'm trying to think back to the last movie that really scared me and i think it might be the witch did you ever see that i don't think i saw that one it but was it
1: like
0: kind of it was like a new england folktale. And no, I wouldn't say it was realistic, but it took place in like the 1600s in this isolated farm in New England. And there was talk of like witches and scary things were happening. And it was all about the atmosphere. And it was, you should watch it. It was super, super creepy. I'd be really curious to see what you think about it. Uh, It was the last really scary movie you saw. That's a good question. I'm trying to
1: think. Okay. I think we watched this together forever ago. The Orphan oh yeah you know, for that for some reason that one freaked me out and I don't know why I guess it was it was semi-realistic right because it was yeah about, it wasn't it was a woman who was pretending to be a child yeah all these malicious things now since um, this movie is old enough I don't feel bad about this okay sorry we <laughs> sorry,
0: spoiled it um
1: I don't know why that
0: one got me Maybe but it's it because didn't. somebody presenting themselves as one thing so convincingly, but then being yes. the total opposite. Yes.
1: Yes. You yeah. it's a sense of like, ooh, do you, you know, we don't know what's going on sometimes. Yes. That that one was scary. I'm trying to think if there's another one. The por- paranormal activity movies.
0: Yeah. Because they me? look, I mean, they're filmed like found footage. So yes. it makes, it tricks your brain into thinking, oh my gosh, that's real.
1: I'm trying to think if there were any other ones, but I think those would be the main ones that have really stuck with me. Um, the the ones with I'm trying to think again with the gore and things like that. More so, I can't watch because I get yeah. They're a little- just
0: gross. They're not even that scary.
1: Yes, but they don't. Yeah,
0: don't necessarily scare me. Yeah, I mean, I think the modern horror viewer and consumer is way smarter. So now, I was reading an article about this. I can't remember where, and it, somebody was saying, if you want to scare people now, you can't have somebody like blindly go down the stairs when they hear something scary, because you, nobody's going to be scared by that because they're thinking well, you're not going to do that, like you know. So it's it's hard, especially as somebody who writes horror, to think about how can I reach people who have seen it all, read it all, been scared by it all, and have gotten over it. And that's a really hard challenge. That's very tough. But again, I think
1: you did such a good job of describing it so vividly that we could actually picture being there, you know, in the subway with him. And I think, again, that makes it scarier because you feel like you're there and it's not such a a fantasy, like a far off fantasy in a way. Like it feels real and tangible.
0: Well, maybe psychological horror will just... Always be a, a scarier medium because I mean you can only come up with so many monsters you can only come up with so many ways for monsters to to jump out and hurt somebody but if you keep returning to these themes like being alone like peeking and then kind of losing your worth that kind of thing I mean yeah. those are perpetually scary yes yeah
1: because again I think you're hitting at people's like core fears yeah biggest vulnerabilities even if, even if someone's not aware of it or not I think someone can connect to that at different levels or really at, a, at any level.
0: Yeah, because i was thinking about like Pennywise when the new It came out, which I really, really loved. But then everybody just kind of started treating the character of It who... It's supposed to look scary they were like oh this is hilarious made him like an icon and he like little children dressed up as him and it took away some of his power to scare you which is ironic yeah. because that's kind of what the whole movie is about but still it's just funny how if you show everybody what the monster is people yeah. will find a way to make it not scary
1: yes well it takes away the mystery yeah yeah right And again i think the scariest the scariest things to us are the unknown yeah Right,
0: and, and exactly. if we know exactly what it looks like, then we can rationalize it away, or we can decide to not be afraid of it anymore. I mean, if you see that scary clown enough times, like you're just not going to be afraid of it anymore. Yeah, you become desensitized,
1: right? Exactly. The like mystery's unveiled, and you look at it in, it, and you realize, okay, wait, actually, isn't as scary as I thought it was, right? But when typically, when we don't know what something looks like, we assume it's something negative, right? Or we might go to worst case scenario.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's why it's so hard to scare either of us, because we've kind of become desensitized to horror. I know I have. I mean, I, we see so many things. And I mean, now if I see, no offense to James Wan, but if I see a movie like The Conjuring or Insidious, it all kind of looks the same. It all follows the same formula. So I found the first one really scary. And then after that, I was like, eh, not so Kind hard. of prepared in a way. Yeah. Right? You already know something's
1: here is going to happen. Something's going to pop out. So you're you're on guard. Yeah. I think that takes away some of the fun. It does.
0: It really does. I want to see something I've never seen before if I'm going to watch horror. Mm -hmm. Or be scared in a way I haven't been scared before. Otherwise, it's not cathartic anymore. And I feel like for some people, that's the whole point of watching horror is to have that adrenaline rush. And if it's not giving it to you, you're not going to watch it. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly. I agree. Um, So, yeah, I mean, again, I think that the scariest things are these things that can feel real to us. And we can place ourselves in these situations and really like feel the emotions ourselves. Like that's, I think that's the most terrifying thing.
0: I totally agree. Well, thank you so much, Camille. This was super, super awesome. I loved interviewing you. And thank you again for talking with us today and sharing your expertise. Thank you again, everybody for listening. I really appreciate it. And I would love if you would please subscribe, rate, review, send carrier pigeons, whatever your mode of providing feedback is, I would so appreciate it. I am a new podcaster, and your support and feedback mean a lot to me. And if you want to keep up with me, you can also sign up for my monthly newsletter at vigiehampton.com. Now, I hope you'll join us next week as well, because we will be hearing Part one of the mysterious, very moist ghost, which I know I've been teasing for the entire season, but it's finally going to be here. So I hope to see you back next week. Thank you so much.